Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest today on the podcast is Vishal Vasan. Vishal is a faculty member at the International Center for Theoretical Sciences in Bangalore, India, where we had this conversation. And this is the second of two interviews that I recorded in India in December 2019, the first being the previous episode with Sula Chanagadgil. Vishal Vasan is an applied mathematician who works on a wide range of problems. He defines his interests, as many applied mathematicians do, not by a specific set of problems that he works on, but instead by a set of mathematical tools and an eagerness to apply those to any real-world problem where those tools can enable progress. In the conversation, he calls himself a mathematical salesman, where his customers are potential collaborators in other fields who have problems where more mathematical expertise could help. So specifically, Vishal works on problems involving partial differential equations, their properties and behavior, and methods for solving them, whether on paper or on the computer. But because partial differential equations appear in nearly every area of the physical sciences and engineering, this interest leaves Vishal a very wide range of turf. As one particularly relevant example here, the equations of motion of a liquid or gas or any fluid are partial differential equations, so the dynamics of the atmosphere and ocean are very much about PDEs, as we call them. And Vishal's PhD thesis was on water waves, especially tsunamis, and he still works on those. But he's also worked on problems in condensed matter physics and optics, and among the problems he now works on is the Indian monsoon, which makes him enough of a climate scientist to fit in this podcast. I only needed a little bit of an excuse to have Vishal on, though, because he's an extremely smart and interesting person and a great conversationalist. In this interview, we talk about Vishal's life trajectory, and it's a global one, moving back and forth between India, the UK, and the US since he was a small child and up to his most recent move back to India. We talk about how all those moves happened, how they affected him at the different stages in his life, and how his identity evolved in his eyes and the eyes of others. He says he doesn't really fit in anywhere, although he seems to be doing fine to me. We talk a bit of science about his work on tsunamis especially. We also talk about how different fields of study and work are viewed in India and how the expectations of family and friends did or didn't affect his choices and his career path. We talk about Vishal's current job at ICTS, a very special institution, and about how he ended up working on the monsoon, which is currently his main point of scientific intersection with me, although it's not how we came to know each other originally, and we talk about that a little. And near the end, we get to Vishal's thoughts about living in India today as someone with a global perspective that he has, and we touch on a bunch of different issues there, economic, environmental, social, and political. It was a wide-ranging conversation with a remarkable person, and I truly enjoyed it, and I'm happy to bring you this recording of it. So here is my conversation with Vishal Vasan. So why don't we start with your biography? Okay. Where are you from, Vishal? Um, that's a hard question for me to answer. I was... We have time. We have time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, I was born in a, in a sleepy temple town in, in South India called Tanjore. Uh, Where is it? What state? It's in it's in the state of Tamil Nadu. Mm -hmm. um, 
the English version of the name sometimes is Tanjore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was born there, but we quickly moved around. We were in another temple town uh, called Srirangam, which is outside of Trichy, also in Tamil Nadu. When you say temple town, does that mean that's why the tourists go there, or does that mean it's uh, actually the center of? It is the center of activity. There's act- there's a ridiculously huge temple. Uh, it's called the Big Temple in in Tanjore, um, and you know it it drives the local economy. And uh, because of, because people come, yeah, pilgrims. Or yeah, I mean, you, you, it, in in some form, very loosely, you can think of it as like um, these sort of French. Uh, towns where all the uh, you know Catholics go uh, for pilgrimages. Right. It's it's kind of like that. And the, like how big of a town are we talking about? Like you, you said, sleepy. Sleepy in the sense that not much else happens other than temple activity. Um, I, uh, it's it's a it's a it's an Indian town, so it'll still be much larger than any European <laughs> town right, okay. in terms of population. Okay. Right. Um, so it's not going to be like you know several hundred thousand. It'll be. Um, maybe a million or so, but oh, okay, a small but, town of a million people. Yeah, I okay, mean, maybe I don't know. I, I someone <laughs> should check me on this, but <laughs> all right, it, you know, it it, it won't be uh, so small. Right. Um, what did your folks do? Uh, my dad is a plastic surgeon, and uh, my mom used to be a teacher before she got married, mm. and then she's been mostly a housewife. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and surprisingly, for a doctor, my dad ended up moving a lot. Which is which is not usual in India. Most doctors like to set up a practice, right? And then I, stay in one, elsewhere as well. I elsewhere guess. as well, yeah. So why? Um, I guess he's a different kind of a doctor who liked to move around. So by choice, um, there wasn't any. No, yeah, by almost entirely by choice. So where did you move around to? So we so we we spent some time in in another part in Tamil Nadu in Trichy. We were in Kerala in Cochin. Mm-hmm. Um, we moved to Chennai. Mm-hmm. Uh, where my mom's parents were, and then my dad yeah. went to the UK. Where's your dad from? He's not from Tamil Nadu. He's also from Tamil Nadu. Oh, okay, uh, he right. got a job in the National Health Service in the UK. You went to the UK. Yep. When? Um, like, how old are you? I don't even. I was probably what five. Oh, okay, so quite early on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was a I, I was a fluent Tamil speaker when I went, mm-hmm. and I quickly forgot how to speak Tamil. Mm-hmm. And I became, I only spoke English. Right. With a with a Yorkshire accent, which was like which, the bane of my family's existence. Right. But you've lost uh, it now. I've also lost that. Uh, so when I was about 10, uh, we came back to Jaipur, uh-huh. to India. We came back to Jaipur. Which is North India. Which is North India in Rajasthan. Yeah. Uh, we came back because my father's friends were starting a hospital and they mm. wanted a plastic surgeon. Okay. And so my dad was like, sure, I want to go back to India uh, this seems like a reasonable gig. Wait, so sorry again. So how old were you at this point? How many ten. years? So ten, I was in ten. sixth grade. You just told me that. Okay. So five grade. years in the UK. Yeah. Come back with the Yorkshire accent. Come back with the Yorkshire accent. Okay. Be called the Englishman or Angrej in Hindi as my nickname uh-huh. in school. Was that a term of uh, it was derangement a, or, or affection? I mean, I think it started <laughs> as, as a bit of an insult. Uh-huh. Um, and then maybe I won them over. I don't know. Uh, I did have some good friends there, so yeah. it, 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 it did turn out fine in the end. You don't seem that psychically damaged. I've thought a lot about it, so <laughs> I've, I've made a lot of progress. <laughs> it, it, I mean, I, I, I mean, I faced a fair bit of racism in the UK. Yeah, I was bullied. I was uh, in school. In, in school, I was I was beaten yeah. up several times. Really. Um, 
we were always working, uh, living in sort of working class neighborhoods. Uh, I was the only brown kid, probably, uh, except for one place where we stayed. Where there were roughly women. when in history is this? Um, late eighties, uh, early nineties. Okay, yeah. And then I came back to India, and I was I was too fair to be Indian. Really? Uh, yeah. So that's why I got the nickname Angrej. Uh, I was uh, many people thought I was too fair. Um, you seem somewhere in the mid-range of Indians to me, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I, I mean, I've, I, I was much fairer at that point because you live in England, you become this pasty white Oh, really? It is, it is that? It's that, it's that environmental? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I, I think I, I do naturally tan a lot. Uh-huh. Um, so given the opportunity not to tan, I didn't. <laughs> okay. Um, which, which, which in Indian context is usually seen as a, as a sign of privilege. Uh-huh. You know, you don't work in the, in the sun. But being in India for a little while didn't... didn't uh... I was in Rajasthan. Oh, I see. Not the so hottest sp- state, the desert state. Right. So I quickly started tanning, <laughs> yeah. but apparently not quickly enough. Okay. Um, and the name stuck. Uh, right. And then, we, then I moved uh, to Chennai and finished my mm-hmm. uh, high school there. Right. So in some sense, that's back to your original. It was a conscious decision on my part to find where I belong. Was this boarding school or how did you? I I spent two days, two nights at a boarding school and then cried and called my dad to come pick me up and said, I can't take it anymore. Uh Uh, And so then my mom stayed with me till I finished uh, 11th and 12th. And my father at the time was actually now in Saudi Arabia. Oh, so he had left Jaipur. All right. And was working in Saudi Arabia. And my initial plan was to have my mom stay with my dad and okay. I would be in a boarding school. Right. That didn't work out because okay. I, ch- I chickened out. Okay. I, I, I wasn't ready to live alone. Um, right. Well, not that many people would be at that age. Yeah. Well, I guess it wouldn't be alone. It would be in the... I mean, was it boarding school like in the English style with... It, it was... Um, up, you know, upper class kids beating, was, beating each other up and abusing each other and stuff? I, mean, like I, didn't, say long, I didn't say long <laughs> enough to, to face that. It was two days, two nights. <laughs> oh, so then you moved, you actually switched school. I actually switched schools. Because you had to be a boarder at that school. So yeah, then you went to like whatever, right. the normal school or something. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Um, and then, yeah, I finished 12th grade and then I did college in Chennai. So I, uh-huh. I continued. At that point, my mom uh, actually went back to Saudi Arabia uh, oh, to I stay can't. with my dad. So I was alone, I living see. alone with, well, actually living with my brother right, and my older brother. And we were living alone, and I would go to college. And, and, you, and you presumably learned the language again by this point? Yeah, by the end of college is when I finally started speaking Tamar again. Oh, you don't speak it in school? It's, I, school is in English, or what language is it in? The medium of instruction is usually English. Oh, yeah. I see. Yeah. So you only need uh, Tamil for on the street? And to make friends. <laughs> so it took you, so you were unable to do that in the beginning? That, that's a valid implication. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, so I I, um, I I started speaking Tamar with an accent. I mean, it didn't come back from your childhood. You had to relearn it. From- I I could understand whatever my parents would. T- so throughout this time, my parents would always talk to me in Tamar. Uh huh. And I would understand it perfectly. But that I just that didn't give you enough of the leg up. I just you, yeah. You would think it would come back quick if you yeah. Okay. No, no. And then when it did come back, it, I I spoke a vernacular sort of possibly vulgar version, which I learned from, you know, bus drivers, auto drivers, <laughs> and college kids. Okay. Not, not the respectable middle-class language that I should be speaking. So I don't think I... I uh, All right. Yeah, I don't think my family... And you're studying math, or what were you studying? Engineering, mechanical engineering. Oh, okay. 
I did a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. All right. And then after college, I went to the U.S., to Arizona. Oh, wait, I don't know about this. So Arizona. Sorry. Arizona State. I did a master's in mechanical engineering. How did you decide to do that? At this point, I was kind of doing what almost every middle-class kid from my community would be doing. Oh, I see. Is do engineering and go to the U.S. So, I see, okay. Um, from the 1990s onwards, this had become a trend. I see. This so was a sort of standard path to perceive yeah, so upward if, mobility or something. Yeah, so, you know, Silicon Valley... Um, has right. all these Indians who generally come from right. these kind of backgrounds. They um, they work at various uh, tech companies after doing a master's degree. Right. And I think, you know, I, I, I've, I finished uh, college in, what was it, 2005. Okay. And so this, this, it's still the de facto kind of brainless thing to do. Uh, if you don't, don't you know. brainless is a little harsh. But. I mean, in the sense that, you're, okay, non self reflective thing to do. I think my father's generation, it was medicine and engineering, and yeah. perhaps his father's generation may have been law. Yeah. The, the tech boom after the Indian economy opened up in 1994, mm-hmm. and you know, the software industry sort of picked up, and there was this whole tech boom. Um, information technology, computer science, was the thing to do it was it was you know the hot subject yeah some would say um, still is some would say still is sure and I, I i didn't do computer science in my bachelor's um right mostly because i i guess i didn't like it enough or maybe i didn't like the people who were computer scientists uh my colleagues my friends or you know other what's the difference between computer scientists and mechanical engineers I guess I don't, what know, I, what, I don't know that many of either one. No, so I, I'm, it's an honest I mean, question. I'm I'm not even talking about computer science or mechanical engineering. I'm oh. talking about you know the sort of social implications or sort of societal expectations that what is a good subject and what is a bad subject. Right. And these are not motivated by um, by an understanding of the technicalities of the subject. Right. Or even how the economy would use the subject. No. These are moral judgments passed by relatives as to what they think is a good career option. So it, it, in the broader Indian setup, and I, I hope it's changed now, but I think it's still largely true that there's a hierarchy of subjects. Right. I guess what I'm saying is it's not like you decided to go and do a, a degree in like, you know, critical theory or, you know, French literature or something. Yeah, that my 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 brother did English literature. Oh, really? He's the true rebel. <laughs> okay. As um, an undergraduate. As an undergraduate. Wow. Yeah. But then you if I remember correctly, you told me he turned out to be the really financially successful one. Correct. And there I love that. And I, I love that story. I, I think Liberal that's a good, arts wins. Exactly. There's there's a very good story to learn. Although he did do an MBA in finance in between. Oh, so, okay, all right. To be fair. <laughs> now he's doing, you know, now he just did a master's in history. So he's gone back to liberal arts. But that's after making enough money to retire. I think so. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think he'd phrase it that way, but I definitely think so. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, now, now's my chance to apologize to my family. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you get to Arizona. So you do the mechanical engineering master's that's, degree that's in Arizona. That's the first time I actually uh, learn about oceanography as a subject. Because Arizona's straight and trace, though. 
it is a strange place learn to learn it. about oceanography <laughs> as a subject. Uh, I worked with someone called Don Boyer, okay. uh, who oh. started the Environmental Fluid Dynamics group with another person called uh, Joe Fernando. I know that. I know that guy's um, name and work a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty famous, right? In the world quite, of quite like famous in the turbulence of, and stuff. Turbulence, oceanography, field experiments. I think he did a lot of work after the tsunami. Uh, he's he's from Sri Lanka himself. Okay. Originally, and mm. so he led this NSF team to look at the damage caused by uh, the Indian Ocean tsunami Two th- of the 2004. That was, of that was quite recent at that time. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I and, and I was in Chennai at the time. Oh, really? And it hit pretty bad there, right? It hit pretty bad. I woke up to the uh, earthquake. Um, as I recall it, I thought it was my brother shaking the bed, so I didn't leave the apartment. Oh, I'm trying to remember. The earthquake was close enough that you actually felt the earthquake in Chennai. All three tremors. Okay. We felt the tremors. And how, I don't, and, I don't and, remember, how bad was it there, the tsunami itself? I, I think it was pretty bad in terms of uh, damage. So, so the city of Chennai uh, got its all beachfront property damaged. Yeah, but not a lot uh, of deaths, you mean? I or? don't recall that many deaths in the city of Chennai. Right. Not a lot like, of upturned cars. Yeah. Luckily, that time of the morning, I don't think there were too many people around. Yeah. Uh, although nearby areas, I, I believe, like nearby villages, were affected. So did that? There were casualties. Did there. that experience have any effect on your uh, on the choice of subject? That uh, I, on anything? I don't know. Uh, I mean, maybe if I think back, maybe. But at the time, it, I mean, it's a jarring event. Yeah, not in a big obvious way. Not in a big obvious way. I mean, way. sometimes it happens that somebody goes through an experience like that and yeah. then it changes their life and they say, I'm going to do I, whatever. I don't, yeah, I don't think I consciously chose to work on tsunamis or any such thing. Although I guess some of my work has been like motivated by tsunami detection systems and whatnot. And I think it's a, it would be wonderful if the story was true, right? I mean, just it, curious. it would be a cute story. But I, I mean, don't a think theme of a lot of these conversations is how, how scientists make decisions yeah. both in their lives and on what they work on. So that's a good... You know, I'm just curious about yeah. how that works or doesn't work. You know, how I, I mean, I think it's, it's a great story. And sometimes I do tell the story as though it had a huge impact. Did it have any impact um, on you personally? I mean, were you? No, no. Okay. not really. Um, generally, how I make decisions is I don't have options. I, there's only one thing for me to do. And I do that one thing. How do you arrange your life so that you don't have options? Uh, I, life seems to arrange that for <laughs> me. So I apply to a lot of places. I only get one. So I go there. Um, oh, you only got into Arizona State. I only got into Arizona State. Right. And then after I finished the master's, which actually had some experiments. So wait, work. so wait. So but you, but you learn about fluid dynamics and oceanography from these guys who are in mechanical engineering. Yes. So you're just doing the degree and these are some of the faculty and, and, yep. and they're just doing something that's a little different than what you're exposed to that's before. That's right. right. It was, uh, we, I was doing rotating tank experiments on spin up and spin down. Right. Uh, I learned it's about geostrophy. It's not really engineering at all. It's not really engineering at all. I loved it. Um, right. I, I, yeah, I mean, I actually liked fluid mechanics for the first time. Mm. I had an undergraduate fluid mechanics course, which I didn't do well in. Right. And, and now I was like, yeah, this, this seems like a lot of fun. Yeah, the engineering approach is a little bit different than the yes. physical oceanography and meteorology right. approach. That's right. I, not, I, I, not completely I, different. Not but, completely different, but I did take yeah. my first GFD course. Geophysical fluid dynamics. Geophysical fluid dynamics. calling out the acronyms, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, I think, I think. Joe Fernando was the one who was teaching that course. Mm-hmm. It's the first time I read uh, the book by Pedlowski. Oh, that's the book he taught out of? That's the book he taught out of. Whew. Few people have the chutzpah to teach out of that. 
That's yeah. A, that's a tough. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful, wonderful book, but yeah, I but wouldn't not have, an easy I wouldn't, one to. I wouldn't teach out of it yeah. either, honestly. I think it makes a lot more sense to me now. Yeah, yeah. Than it did then. It's a great book to read once you sort of understand the stuff and you want the deeper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although his 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 newer book on waves. It's more ocean, accessible. It's much more accessible. I mean, newer, it's probably 15 years old. but yeah. Newer, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. relatively speaking. Yeah. yeah. Um, Julian Hunt used to be in Arizona State at the time. I don't know. Um, Ron Adrian was at Arizona State. He's, he's this father of PIV, uh-huh. particle image velocimetry. Yeah. The uh, president now is Mike Crow, who actually... He was, Mike, he was the president then? Oh, he was the president then. He, he's in no small part responsible for getting me my job at Columbia. It's interesting. Oh, is that? Okay. Yeah, he came yeah. from Columbia. Do you know that? I didn't know that. Yeah, he had a huge role in the early Earth Institute, and yeah. uh, he was a big mover and shaker at Columbia. But you know, he wasn't he, the president, he, so they. Yeah, yeah I think he up. he may have joined the president of uh, Arizona maybe a, a little bit before I just. Yeah. Joined. In fact, he's he's siphoned off a few of our faculty in the years in between. A few people have left Columbia to go there, probably after your time. Probably after my time. Yeah. Yeah. So then, in two thousand seven, I went to University of Washington. Okay, so, so you, wait, so you get the degree in mechanical engineering and then you go to University of Washington to do a PhD. In applied math. In applied math. Yes. So... Again, I applied to several places and I got one, so... Really? Yeah. I mean, University of Washington is a pretty good program in applied math. I'm not saying I'm not lucky. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, like, what were the other... Okay, I don't know. What were the other places? What, uh, were, they, what were they thinking? I mean, why that... I, mean, I, don't, I don't know, you know, I mean... There's, there's, in other words, it's not like that's the bottom of the pile you know it is a, no it's an excellent not. program yeah yeah, it is, yeah 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 i think i think my my advisor in arizona state don boyer thought i was applying to oceanography mm-hmm. in university of washington mm-hmm. not to applied math mm-hmm. um i think he was probably a little disappointed so what um, so how did you choose applied math then i wanted to always go back to math oh, okay i wanted to do that i i took some pd courses in the math department at Arizona. Partial differential equations. Partial differential equations. I did some courses on perturbation methods and asymptotics. Mm-hmm. I really you know, enjoyed that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, when you say go back to it. I, mean, I guess, yeah. I guess there was an initial intention of doing mathematics for my undergraduate degree, which mm-hmm. I never followed through on. The peer pressure got to you or something? The, the, the... I, I think that's, that's the right conclusion. Although at the time I, I said... I want to prove to others I can do this. I mean, it was dumb of me. I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, w- would math have been an even more rebellious choice than I believe so. mechanical engineering? Okay. I believe so. Yeah, yeah, it would have been. No, I think applied math in India has, doesn't have such a great reputation. Um, really? <laughs> yeah. As compared to pure math? You said apply, like pure yeah. math has a better reputation? Pure math has a much better reputation in India. As a career choice, not just as a... I think aesthetic pursuit. Yeah, yeah, probably. That's, why, why is that? Are there some heroes, mathematicians, or something that people look up to? Or are there Ramanujan comes yeah. to mind? Is that the reason? I mean, uh, I, th- I think there's a, there's this you know there's a mythology about him, and there's a certain ascetic quality that I think we uh, admire. I see. I see. Um, so there's the make a lot of money. You can make a lot of money, or you can be Gandhi or something. Right, right. You know, you're, you're, you must be a moral person if you don't want money. Right, but applied <laughs> math is neither one. You're just sort of. A <laughs> I, th- I think with applied math, the question usually comes down to, well, what are you doing that an engineer couldn't? Right. To which there probably is an answer. The, yeah, there probably is an answer, and I think you know it depends on the applied mathematician. Yeah, I think applied mathematics is too broad a spectrum. It probably is an ill-defined concept and ranges it is an, it is from engineering concept. to pure math. Right, and I think I like 
applied math for that reason. Yeah. I get to go up and down the scale. Uh, and I don't know which direction is up and down, by the way. I'm not implying pure math is up and it's, engineering. It's fine. Yeah, it's, I, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, there's a horizontal scale. I go left and right. <laughs> totally fine. Nowadays, coming like to present day, if you talk about data and yeah. machine learning, I think right. people are sort of seeing that yeah. they, they're appreciating it, even if they don't fully understand that that's guided by a lot of knowledge in applied math right. as well. Right. Um, even if it's maybe not presented yeah. always in that light, I think the notion of what applied mathematics stands for, which is solving concrete problems motivated right. by areas outside of mathematics and using tools yeah. uh, from one area in another area. Yeah. And maybe a mathematician takes a different view, but I think you know, as an applied mathematician who was formerly an engineer... Right. And likes to do math as well. Right. I, I like to sit in between. Well, engineer might actually make something at some point. <laughs> that is also true. That's also true. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So anyway, so you, so, so you decided to do applied math, go to University of Washington, Seattle. Yep. Started um, working with uh, Jim Riley uh, okay, on uh, stratified turbulence. Okay. Uh, large scale um, simulations. So these are on these massively parallel supercomputers. Okay. Um, I don't know. Is he, was he a, a young faculty? Because we should say I was a postdoc at University of Washington in atmospheric sciences yep. in the late 90s. So I knew a few of the people in applied math. But so he is, uh, his, his main appointment, I believe, is in mechanical engineering. Oh, all right. Okay. And he has a, a joint appointment with okay. applied math. I see. Okay. So it's natural free. Okay. Yeah. 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 It, was, it, it seemed like a very natural choice. Um, yeah. Actually, after working for about maybe a year and a bit, I wanted a change mm. and I wanted to actually swing to more pure math. Okay. Um, and I uh, changed advisors. Okay. And, and, and worked with Bernard de Koenig mm. on water wave uh, problems. Okay. So there's our tsunami. That's right. So this is where the tsunami <laughs> comes back. And, and the problem that I worked on, one of the problems in my thesis was, you know, if you, if you measure the pressure at the bottom of the ocean, can you tell me how high the water column is uh -huh. and you know a naive theory would say from archimedes the pressure is uh proportional to the height and that's not actually true well the pressure you're actually measuring is hydrodynamic pressure hydrostatic pressure right is pressure proportional to height sure but i would have thought these things are approximately hydrostatic they're not well they are approximately hydrostatic if you're looking at the deep ocean uh -huh. When you come into the coastal regions, uh, a lot of non-hydrostatic effects really? come into play. Really? The accelerations are yeah. large enough? Okay. Uh, large enough in that uh, you can do lab experiments as well to simulate these things. Oh. Uh, and the peak amplitude, the peak height of the wave, uh -huh. if you used hydrostatic theory, uh -huh. and if you compared it with experiments, you'd be off by 20%. Okay. Which could, which could, which could matter. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, so, so this was kind of the problem Bernard gave me, which was, is there a better way to estimate uh, what the pressure is, assuming non-hydrostatic So effects. was this an analysis problem or it's a, I mean, how did you attack this? So the context is uh, you have to assume a model for the fluid. Uh, so you assume inviscid, irrotational, essentially potential flow. Free surface is, is mm -hmm. an unknown. 
And right. it turns into, uh, in mathematics, what you call an inverse problem. Right. Usually, uh, there are, uh, a forward problem in mathematics is uh, you are given an input and you want to find the solution or, to an equation. Right. And the input is usually the parameters of the equation. Right. Um, an inverse problem is you're given the solution yep. and you need to figure out the parameters. Right. And so here, um, typically one thinks of pressure as the output of the model. Yeah. It's the solution to the problem. Right. And you want to find this mapping from pressure to surface elevation. Right. Um, and so it's in the context of what a mathematician who works in PDEs, partial differential equations, yeah. calls an inverse problem. Right. And so what I did was proved a theorem that for certain classes of waves, yeah. there's a one-to-one relationship between the pressure you measure uh-huh. and the surface elevation you get. It's a one-to-one relation, but it's not hydrostatic? It is not hydrostatic. It is fully nonlinear. Uh-huh. So it has all the nonlinearities. I assume there's no vorticity in mm-hmm. this uh, model. Potential flow, it's, right? It's yeah. potential flow. And that's one of the reasons why I'm able to show that for fully nonlinear, non-hydrostatic equations, mm. traveling waves, mm-hmm. waves traveling with a constant speed, give a nice one-to-one relationship between the pressure you measure at the bottom and the surface elevation that it corresponds to. And I know you just said this, but let me just make sure I got it right. So, I mean, operationally, I mean, there are tsunami warning systems and there are Correct. people measuring pressure. Correct. These non-hydrostatic corrections are actually substantial in, in, in practice? or so, so that's an interesting question, and that's one of the things I looked at in my postdoc. One of the things we wanted to answer was uh, using field uh, data, that is, data obtained by buoys out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, let's say, that record um, pressure readings from uh, piezoelectric crystals placed at the bottom of the ocean. Right. Moorings. Moorings. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I think it's NOAA that has all these buoys. For the across. U.S., yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's all this public data that was available. What you see is out in the deep ocean, mm-hmm. the hydrostatic reconstruction where you just assume pressure is proportional to surface elevation right. by the constant rho g, where rho is density. And right. So the pressure is just the weight of the water on top of you. Yeah. Exactly. That is a remarkably accurate version. Yeah, I would have thought, yeah. Um, I would have thought everywhere, but I'm learning. But in, in the coastal yeah. uh, areas, this, um, this model of hydrostatic reconstruction does seem to do worse. So we talked mm. to a couple of people from... Um, the, la- the uh, applied physics lab in Washington, mm-hmm. uh, as well as some uh, Army Corps engineers, I believe, in Duck, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they, they seem to have this knowledge that you shouldn't trust pressure readings out in the coastal regions, mm-hmm. that they weren't good uh, gauges. They, they got the wrong height. Mm. And our point was, no, they're measuring fine. <laughs> We're right. just using the wrong formula. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so did you get them to use yours? We, we, we applied to be in the shore protection manual uh, with our updated formula. Now, I should say we proved a theorem in a, in a hard context. Yeah. But, you know, as a good old applied mathematician, I said, now let's approximate this yeah. equation yeah. and work in different asymptotic regimes yeah. and give you formulae which are just as easy to compute as what you're already doing. Yeah. But give you better accuracy. Excellent. 
And so that's the kind of formula that we've tried to get into uh. the shore protection manual. And we've tried to encourage people. One of the things we faced, the difficulty, ironically enough, was whenever we told someone, you know, if you measure the pressure, you should also probably just measure the surface elevation independently just to verify whether your pressure gauges are working fine. Right. Uh, and then most people would get back to us. Why would we ever do such a thing? We can always reconstruct the elevation from the pressure. Yeah. We were saying, well, that's kind of what we're telling you is that if you're going to use the hydrostatic reconstruction model, you had better validate that model in your test case first. Right. Uh, so if you have some you know, independent measurements of surface heights, yeah. at least make sure that you know, you... you you, you have what are the independent measurements for satellite or from radar or so how do you measure surface height independently? Um, so I know I, I definitely can tell you how we do it in the lab, and I believe you can use um, buoys with uh, with GPS or something with something that measures acceleration uh, and then try to back out. Right, right, because they do wave. Yeah, yeah. you get wave heights and stuff from those buoys. Yeah, yeah that's right. So you can you can use yeah. that as a way. One of the problems I faced when I was, this is the first time I was working with data from the field experiments as a postdoc. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of but the that's po- actually great. Wait, so the postdoc is where? The postdoc, interestingly enough, is in the Department of Mathematics in Pennsylvania State University. Oh, okay. So Penn okay. State okay. has a fluids lab uh-huh. in its basement. So who's the, who runs it? Uh, I was working with uh, one of the main PIs there, Diane Henderson. Okay, I've heard, that. Um, I've heard of her, yeah. Uh, there, there were loosely two faculty members who were associated with it, uh, and I was mostly working with Diane. Mm-hmm. Diane was also involved in my work when I was a PhD student. That's when I met her. Mm. We actually validated the theory with experiments she did in her lab uh-huh. when I was a PhD student. Right. And that's when we showed that our, our reconstruction gave you less than 1% error mm. with experimental data. Mm. Um, which at which point I I mean I didn't want to even prove the theorem. Why prove a theorem if it right. works? Right. Um, actually, this is great. So you're this is a great advertisement for applied math. So actually, you're proving theorems. Yep. You go and make measurements in a lab. Yep. And you're putting stuff into manuals for people that are operationally doing prediction of tsunamis. That's the goal. I don't. I, yeah. So th- there's a there's a wonderful story. If only I was motivated by the tsunami. <laughs> <laughs> that right. was actually that would have made it a better story, but yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. There's Let's a good story to be told you, here. Okay, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it, retrospectively, we can say that subconsciously you were we can fit traumatized, and you yeah, we can fit the data. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, in in my postdoc, I, I worked on sort of experimental applications of kind of the stuff that I had done in my PhD thesis. Hmm. Try to validate. This is, that. I didn't realize this. I mean, I don't know you that well, but I think of you as more mathematical. I didn't realize you had done all this rather applied. Yeah, I, I kind of like things. to do. I, I, again, um, I like to go along uh, the spectrum, up and down, slide. No, this is well, and, this is how we advertise applied math, but it's not always. Yeah, you know. it, unfortunately, I, I mean, to be fair, not everyone gets the opportunities I had. I was extremely lucky that I worked with. Uh, an advisor, Bernard, who happened to know Diane very well. Mm. He was the one who introduced me. Uh, I spent uh, um, a couple of weeks in Diane's lab as a PhD student. Mm. Um, That's when much of the work initially was done. Mm. Uh, And then I worked with another colleague of mine who was a former student of Bernard. Mm. And then we all kind of got together and said, well, we can actually sort of do this problem. And it's a paper I'm kind of proud of where, you know, there's a concrete engineering question there is a theorem, 
right. in fairly abstract mathematics, I will say. Right. Um, and then there's wonderful asymptotics. Yeah. Uh, there was numerics that was done to yeah. validate the model yeah. and the reconstruction. Yeah. And then there's an experimental section as yeah. well. I mean... What journal did you publish this in? Uh, Siam Journal of Applied Math. Okay. I mean, again, to, to wave the flag of applied math. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where else should this go? <laughs> I don't know. I never published anything there, but it sounds good to me. So, okay, wait. So, so wait. So, Arizona... Uh, Mechanical let, engineering. Let, let's go back to, yeah. to life for a minute from science. Yeah. yeah. So Arizona State, that's the one that's in... Tempe. Tempe, right. So that's what, a couple of years? Two years. Two years. And how, how many years in Seattle? Five years. Five, Five years, years PhD. Yeah. And then three State years, College, Pennsylvania. Three okay. years in State College, Pennsylvania. This brings us to 2015. Okay, wait, wait. But so like about 10 years in the States... So almost exactly 10 years. So having gone from moved around India as a kid, then gone in the UK and then come back. And then Thor- go, I mean, thoroughly confused. Thoroughly confused. So how was your time in the States? I mean, did you have culture shock when you got there? Or was it fine because you're already so disoriented it didn't matter? I, I, I think it's probably a yes to both of them. <laughs> okay. um, I, was, I was thoroughly confused. And I, I think I went to the US thinking, well, you know, I certainly don't feel like I fit in India. Uh, this can't get any worse. So why not go halfway around the world and see how that okay, feels? That's bad, huh? Okay. Um, I don't think it was it was bad that I needed therapy or any such thing, but I definitely felt like I didn't belong. Yeah, therapy probably never hurts anybody. But Therap- I haven't I, had it. I need it real bad, and I haven't had it. So yeah, let's I, not let's I, not go I, there. But. I'm a big <laughs> proponent of therapy, and I'm a huge hypocrite that I don't do it myself. <laughs> right, right, me and, too. Yeah. And I and I think I should. I think I'll be a happier I'm, person. I'm right there with you. That's I'll, you. You <laughs> um, do it, and I'll, I'll do it, and we'll compare notes. Yeah. You know, p- part of this is therapeutic <laughs> as well. <laughs> Absolutely. No, don't don't but, not, but, don't but doubt I, for I, a minute. I, that's why I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 I was aware of the decision that, you know, I'm going to go halfway around the world from where I was. Right. Um, it can't get any worse. But then when you got there, it was fine. But you speak, I mean, you spoke English very well already. I spoke English very well. Yeah. Um, I would say Tempe, Arizona was a good choice. Really? Why? A remarkably large Indian student population. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I didn't feel like I left. <laughs> and Really? I mean, I understand that you could have a lot of friends from India, it's but like, hot. Oh, okay, that's Chennai is hot. That too. All right, it's a little drier, probably. It's a, it's a lot drier. <laughs> I was missing. So when I went from Tempe to Seattle, that was another conscious decision that I want to see rain. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I get that. Yeah. Um, Maybe yeah, a little more sun wouldn't hurt you, but yeah. Summers in Seattle are gorgeous. Summers in Seattle are gorgeous. It's true. Um, so usually no, nobody tells you that, <laughs> yep. but summers in Seattle are absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, coffee, yeah. coffee, microbrews, this, you know, there are many good things about Seattle. Yeah. Um, I absolutely loved my time. And state there. college. State college was a different place. Also a lot of Indian students, I imagine. A lot of Indian students. Yes. Um, I think by this time I had developed some sort of conscious aversion to the Indian community. Right, right. Um, didn't matter as much to you. Didn't, didn't matter you as much to You wanted to avoid me. them or what? I, I probably wanted to avoid <laughs> okay. them. Um, I mean, I, I have some good friends from, from that time who are Indian. Yeah. But none, nonetheless, I think, right. you know, a, a small college town where okay. football is a big deal right. was, was not something that I had 
sort of prepared myself for. Right. Me neither. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, never, I think I never have lived in such a place. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, I, research wise, it was a great place. I loved the, yeah. the people I met in the department. I loved working with Diane. I loved doing experiments. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I ever got used to football on the weekends. Did you ever go? I went once. Mm. Mostly I spent the time tailgating. Yeah, um, I, I believe may- that's the main attraction. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, probably not the only one. It's probably not the <laughs> only one. I, I, don't, I, I, I can't say I understand the game. Um, yeah, well, I don't understand cricket, so. Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> to each their own. Uh, <laughs> so what I really want to get to is, so, okay, so 10 years in the U.S., yep. you just, you go to, you got big cities, you got hot climates, cold yep. climates. That's right. You know, football, yep. urban, whatever. Yep. So then... 2015, I come to Bangalore. So, so can we just talk about the decision to do that? Like, how did that come about? Once again, uh, I had no other option. I had one job offer. Um, like, come on. I mean, you, I mean... I guess I could have gone to industry. I interviewed with some places, but I never heard back. What, what, so um, what jobs were you applying for? You were- uh, in the U.S., I was mostly applying for uh, academic positions. Uh-huh. So you, basically, you're finishing your postdoc. You kind of yeah. go on the job market for like one sort of season i think i was on the job market each year of my postdoc i i sent out applications each year okay so and i never got anything no no one really responded. did you get interviews uh i did not interview with any place except at icts okay all right so you're having a tough time i'm having a tough time um i didn't expect to hear back from icts icts was some place i applied on a whim maybe i shouldn't even mention these things um, did you look at other places in india or was that the only i one? looked at two places in india so you were, you're, you're thinking like, I'm going to try to get a job in the States, yeah. but sort of maybe it won't work out. And I don't know, maybe I get a job in India, maybe it'd be okay. And so, so I think, I mean, the, I just want to understand the thought process. Right. So, so I think I had, I, I was largely looking for an academic position in the U S mm. I think I liked the academic lifestyle. I yeah. felt like I was an academic. Um, you, I mean. My external judgment is, yeah, you yeah. you fit the I, profile, yes. <laughs> right, right. So I, I wasn't deluding myself, <laughs> right. um, which is a good thing. Um, and I had considered industry options in the U.S. as well. What industry? I was looking at places like IBM, you know, things that have some research aspect yeah, yeah. to it. Right. Because right. I was like, you know, I, I enjoy problem solving and research. I, yeah, and I'm curious about because my perception is this that like in the old days, I mean like, you know, the 70s and earlier. Yeah. That there was a lot of research at those companies and then it kind of went away. And then now it's coming back in a different way with all the big with data. With all the big data, IBM's yes. doing weather prediction. That's right. I mean, there's That's all this right. kind of new stuff happening. That's but right. I don't know in 2015. So, so, so this is weird. I actually did have a phone conversation with some folks at IBM mm. and I think it was in their smart cities initiative. Uh, so okay. smart involves data. Yeah, sure. Um, multiple data sources, usually for environmental aspects as well. Mm-hmm. And IBM, I don't know if they still do, but at the time IBM had um, a weather modeling group in New Delhi. Oh, well, they definitely have a weather modeling group now. Whether it's in New Delhi, I don't know. But they have, yeah, so I mean, they're they're huge going at it all out. They're running global models. They're that's doing right. Their own. Yeah, that's they right. brought the weather channels, digital properties. Yeah, yeah it's big. It's so a big deal and growing. Yeah, it is. It was. I, I don't think it was as big a big deal, and I certainly didn't make the connection. No, that was real. I think around that. I can't remember the exact chronology, but around that time, it was really just starting to happen, and it's, it's yeah. blowing up now. Yeah, I looked at GE. 
Um, mm-hmm. I looked at um, maybe even Procter and Gamble. Mm-hmm. They do some interesting uh, food processing problems and flow problems and, and mixing. Right. And I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, what do you want me to do? Run a CFT code? I can do that. Okay. Um, but I think the, the number one option would have been an academic position. Right. And my advisor in some email list that he's on right. got an advertisement for a position at ICTS and forwarded it to, to me. Which at this time was how new of a place? Uh, on on paper, I believe ICTS began, began in 2007. Okay. And it was in a, a temporary campus first in right. Bombay, and then it was in a temporary campus in Bangalore. Oh, was, I did not know that. I was, okay, Bombay yeah. first, okay. Uh, so ICTS uh, is part of the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research. Right. And the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research has their main branch mm. in Bombay. Yeah. Or Mumbai. Okay, so... Uh, Right, so 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 still a very very new institution. It is by a very the standards new of academic. I, yeah, so I, I believe the first hires of faculty at ICTS maybe would have been twenty fifteen, possibly. I'm, but 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 yeah, fair, fairly fairly new. There was there was a fair bit of activity. It was mostly organizing programs. I think once uh, ICTS had uh, a facility in the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore, mm-hmm. um, which was. Which it did by this time that you which, were which, looking at it. By the time uh, in 2015 I applied, uh-huh. it, it they were functioning out of the Indian Institute of Science. So we should say Indian Bangalore. Institute of Science is a is a old institution. I mean, o- o- been, older than India, older than India, right? Been around since the beginning of the 20th century. Um, if I'm not mistaken, first scientific research institute in Possibly the country st- started by C. V. Raman, right? And so with a beautiful enormous green Gorgeous campus, campus in, the in Bangalore. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so, so ICTS had, had this new institute had sort of got its foothold by having a little space within this much older yeah. established institution. So it, it's, it's almost like an incubation center. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we, were, we were incubating ourselves there. And, right, right. Um, that's where I interviewed in 2015. Yeah. Uh, maybe 2014. So in some sense, you... You know, you wanted to be an academic more than you were cared about what country it was in. I mean, Absolutely. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think a lot of people who were on the job market in 2012 to 2015 had similar views, which is, you know, you'd just take a job no matter where it was. 12 to 15? What's special about that? Well, I graduated in 2012 uh, from my PhD. Oh, I see. That's just the period you were familiar with. Yeah, that's okay. the period I was familiar with where I was applying and I was talking to people who were applying and... yeah. yeah, um, yeah. I, there, there was a bit of a slump in the academic market, if I'm right. Well, there was a financial crash in 07, 08. That had some fallout for a while. I'm not sure if that had anything to do with it. but Yeah. That, that froze hiring in some places for a while. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, I, I didn't really know much about ICTS when I applied. And I came to uh, ICTS... And, I, and the other place that I wanted to interview at, which is a sister institute of ICTS, mm-hmm. the Center for Applicable Mathematics. Right. And these were the only two places in India that I knew of. Right. I mean, I knew of the IITs, the Indian Institutes of Technology. Right. Um, but I really didn't, for some reason, I don't know. I don't think I have a good reason at all. I just didn't apply there. Well, this is a moment to say that this institute where you're working and where we're sitting right now is very, very different from all those other institutions that you've mentioned in the sense that those are massive universities. Yes. 
I mean, very prestigious and very yes. excellent, very yes. hard to get into, you yes. know, turn out very successful graduates. Yep. But they're large, old institutions. Yes. This is a place with a new campus. You have, this is the statistic I just love to repeat because it blows my mind. You have more acres on the campus than you have faculty members. So you. Correct. It's, it's this, and you're on the far in the outskirts of Bangalore now, this very remote, uh, peaceful, Quiet, yeah. green, brand new campus where with a lot of visitors and, and with, I, I, I yeah. should say, you know, there are, there are 16 of us with 20 acres, but there's 16 a, faculty. 16 so faculty. Very, so compared to, I mean, I don't know how many IIT Bombay has, but it's a way large more, multiple of 16. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but we, we have a lot of visitors as well. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I'm just saying it's a, it's a very, elite, it's a very different place. Tranquil. Yes. You know, special kind of a place. I think so. It, yeah. I, I mean, it, Within the Indian context and possibly outside oh, of the Indian hell. context. Come on, this would be uh, unusual um, anywhere in the world. I mean, yeah. there's not a lot of places you can work like yeah. this. And, and I should also say the International Center for Theoretical Sciences doesn't really do departments. Well, so how many are, departments are you going to have with 16 faculty? Right, but you could there, be your there own are 16 <laughs> faculty with essentially 16 different research perspectives and research goals. But all sort of broadly are, within math and physics. Absolutely. Broadly within math and physics. But even having mathematicians and physicists essentially in the same department yeah, to the level that I can you know, knock on my colleague's door who's a physicist, right? I think that's paid personally yeah. for my research a lot of dividends. This is one of those things um, that's so hard to explain to people outside is that like... Outside of academia. Outside of, well, outside of math and physics... Oh, for sure. <laughs> is, you know, that, that, yeah. that, you know, math and physics look pretty similar to most people. Yeah. Whereas to mathematicians and physicists, you know, it's like New York versus Boston or something like oh, to I, most of the world. Those like are hard to distinguish, but ask somebody in New York or Boston, like it's not, <laughs> it's I, not, I, uh, so, so, okay. So I don't you, know what so, the Indian equivalent would be, but like, well, <laughs> okay. So, so you, 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 compared New York and Boston, presumably because you're a New Yorker. Yes. And I also um, lived in Boston. For and a while. also you lived in Boston. And I would obviously say two sides of the Atlantic, the two places that I lived, which is, you know, you speak English on both sides of the Atlantic oh, really? in the UK, but boy, do you speak two different languages? Right. I mean, you know, it's, it, but is, are, is there somebody who thinks that they're indistinguishable? I mean, that's the, that's what I'm trying to capture. I, I, like to somebody, I, I, it looks the same. Yeah, I'll like, tell you, I'll tell you who it's, it's the, it's the third identity I use, which is my Indian identity. Right. So from where I'm sitting as an Indian, that's all West. I don't know how we got onto this topic. Well, because I was asking how you got back to India. And so like you were looking for an academic job and you didn't, you say you'd only got one choice. So, yeah. you know, you didn't get the job you were looking for in the U S but the, this opportunity came up yeah. in India yeah. And the thought of coming back to India was a pro, a con, ambivalent. You didn't, I mean, I think how did you feel about that? Or how do you I, feel about it now? Or well, I don't know. I'm just interested in this whole life decision process. So I, I think I had this broad idea that after working for maybe 10 years after the postdoc in the US, mm -hmm. I would eventually come back to India. Well, so you did have that in your mind. Yeah. I, I think I was not opposed to that idea. Mm. Um. And Out of family connection, patriotism? Certainly not patriotism. Mm. Uh, family connection, possibly. Mm. Um, and, you know, this whole question of identity that was haunting me from childhood. Right. And I sort of realized after 10 years that I probably don't belong there either. Um, mm. It was probably one of the places that I did enjoy the most. But I did still didn't entirely. In the U.S. Oh, uh-huh. Oh, 
And I, I think I still felt at the end of the day that, you know, I'm not entirely Indian. I'm not entirely the US. I'm not entirely the UK. I don't know what, what I am at this point. Right. But um, I wasn't opposed to going back to the one country that can't legally kick me out. <laughs> Okay, that's the lowest I, common denominator, I guess. <laughs> I, I make my decisions fairly practically. <laughs> okay. So, given, given that I wasn't on any green card application at the point, right. um, I strongly considered the opportunity of going back to India. Right. And when I came to ICTS, I really loved it yeah. when I interviewed. Right. When I interviewed, I was absolutely impressed with this place. Yeah, yeah. Um, Although not yet this campus. I had it? yeah. So this campus was still under construction. Right. But I, did you see it? I did see it. Oh, okay. They said this is where it. you're going to be. This is where we're going to be. This is yeah. what the campus looks like. This is what the offices look was like. Was that part of the being deeply impressed, or was it, or not really? More the no, intellectual. No, I think I think I was I was impressed with the people I met. Mm. I liked the people I met. I mm. didn't realize there was so many people who had similar experiences to mine, which was had spent a decade or so in the U.S. or outside of India. Right. And had decided to come back for whatever reason. Right. I mean, which is interesting because, I mean, they must have all, by definition, been recent hires because the place yes. hasn't been, hadn't yes. been around. Yes, so most of our faculty are, are junior faculty. Most of our faculty are not tenured. Right. But, I mean, junior or senior, they would have had all come recently because the place just hadn't simply hadn't been there yes. before a few yes. years earlier. Yeah. Yes. So, so all of us are, you know, similar age, similar background. Yeah. And it, of course, it's not just that I was absolutely floored with the administration. Really? I, that, that was a key thing for me. That's I interesting. Mean, That's not it's, something it's, people usually say about faculty jobs. They No, it. they probably should. Um, yeah. I think, you know, staff play a crucial role to making the life of an academic easy. Right. But you probably notice it more when there's only 16 faculty. Than when there's you well, know, I noticed thousands it, I, I, or yeah, whatever. I, I noticed it as a visitor. I mean, the people they had hired, absolute, you know, yeah, wonderful people who were incredibly efficient. You know, this was not an experience I had working in big universities in the U.S. Mm. I knew how administration could work. I mean, yeah. and you know, it's no fault of the administration. When things get large, things sort of move less flexibly. Yeah. Um, so it's you would say it's not that bureaucratic here. I, I would say that people strive to make an attempt to be not as bureaucratic mm. or to be as less bureaucratic as possible. Mm. And, and it's, it's an earnest attempt. I mean, to sort of help people do what they're here to do. Yeah, that's um, great. I think yeah. that's, that's great. And, and I wish to share that appreciation of that. Like, I think the staff do a remarkable job here. It's not just the faculty. I think what, what really makes my time fun here, of course, it's the colleagues and the faculty. Right. But you can find good colleagues and faculty in lots of departments. The combination of both good staff and good faculty, mm -hmm. I think that, that should be recognized. Okay. There's a pitch for the staff at ICTS. Okay. All right. Now that you've appreciated everybody and we won't get in trouble, let's talk about all the really bad things. <laughs> no, fair enough. No, fair no, enough. I mean, but, but what about living in India? I mean, was that was that easing back into a familiar thing? Was it a culture shock again? Culture shock again, one hundred percent. Okay. Um, India changed a lot in the ten years that I was away. Yeah. Um, and this is a, and also coming from state college to Bangalore is like a. 
how many orders of magnitude change in size of population. Change in the size of the population. It is a big metropolitan city. Um, There's people who don't just work in the university. There are people who work in the IT sector. You would never describe Bangalore as a college town. No. (laughs) Although there are very, I mean, there are a lot of good research institutes in Bangalore. Oh, sure. And so it has a wonderful ecosystem of academia, and it has a great ecosystem of IT services, biotechnology. Historically, it used to be uh, run by the by the defense uh, organization. So, oh, that so the military mean? have, like there's an air, there are several Air Force bases, mm. um, there are several Army bases. Um, this used to be sort of like, you know, where the training grounds and barracks were. Right. And so the defense industry used right. to be here. Um, Hindustan Aeronautics, right. which builds airplanes and, right. and whatnot, is based here. But I mean, it's known in the West as a center of tech industry, of... post. Post-liberalization, of, of post- outsourcing, yes. of yes, just major. So, so there's ju- a lot going hub on. of yeah. economic activity in a few different areas yeah. that have all grown rapidly. Yeah, you know, probably in, too rapidly for everyone's right. Uh, What's the population? There? I don't even how many million. Lots of millions. Lots of millions, probably. Yeah, ten and very sprawling out quite far. Yeah, although not quite to here. I mean, this is really ICTS quiet is, out is, here. is pretty remote. Yeah. Uh, although. You would think in 10 years' time this would be part of the city. Yeah. I mean, there still are people living out here, but it's yeah. low density. Yeah. 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 You can expect a Starbucks in 10 years. Okay. You think? Okay. I, I, I imagine so. Yeah. Well, you probably... If, if Starbucks is still around. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I threw shade at Starbucks there. <laughs> yeah. I think you... Yeah. That's my Seattle coming out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, mom and pop coffee st- uh, shops all the way. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm with you. Okay. So culture shock in India. Absolutely culture shock in India. Realize that I probably don't fit here as well, but I am having a lot of fun. So we'll do that. Right. So this is. Um, so you've been here a few years. Five years. Touching right. five years. Right. And so, I mean, how do I like it? Or? Yeah. I guess let's let's start there. Let's start there. Bangalore traffic is awful. Hard to argue. Yes. Um, Bangalore traffic causes lots of pollution. Also true. And that's not a pleasant experience. Right. I mean, it's not the worst city in India, but... It is not the worst in India, but the trends are indicating that it's getting worse. Yeah. Um, Although, I mean, I don't know. It it seems like it's getting so bad in Delhi. Yeah, Delhi is is an outlier in terms of how bad it's getting. No, but I mean... The rest of the country isn't as bad. Right, I understand. But I guess what I meant to say is, like, it's getting so bad that something has to change. For sure, for sure. And so maybe that'll help elsewhere as well. Absolutely. That's the hope. Um, I, I should say, I was talking to colleagues at the Indian Institute of Tropical Meteorology in Pune. Yeah, where I was last week. Wonderful lab with great wonderful place with wonderful people who do some very good stuff um who was saying that delhi is not an outlier in the indo-gangetic plane so you know delhi of course being the capital gets a lot of publicity yeah but there are some uh, you know along the ganges yeah right there's there's a lot of uh air quality issues that that need to be addressed and hopefully if you address it in delhi like you say there's some sort of trickle down effect where right. other cities can get better policies right. on, on how to manage this. 
So, so those are things that frustrate me. Yeah. Um, on the whole, I like Bangalore. Yeah. I don't think I would probably want to live anywhere else in India. I do enjoy myself here. Right. It is it is one of the few places I see myself stay right. in India. I and enjoy it. Uh, okay, and so then science-wise, science-wise in terms it, of like what you've been doing, so it's like the you know, we talked about in your younger days how you had the the math, the yeah. engineering, yeah, you know, tsunamis and that's right. and oceanography. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah, what's the current balance of activities and and, so I think and why and how is that evolving? As I mean, as I said earlier, um overall mathematics in India has a purer bent. Right. So the opportunities to sort of distinguish yourself as an applied mathematician. Mm-hmm aren't readily available if you are in a mathematics department, perhaps. Most of the math departments, even the ones with, you know, people are doing PDEs and that kind of stuff, you know, they might be doing things like more mathematical aspects, like, you know, does this equation have a solution? Right. Uh, Is it unique? Um, There are some people doing inverse problems, but this combination of, you know, let's talk to an experimentalist. Right. Let's let's match our theorem with data. Um, that kind of freewheeling sort of applied math mm. is, is, I think, it's a little harder in a traditional mathematics department. Mm. Luckily, ICTS is a very non-traditional place. Right. Uh, that said, we're all theoreticians. In fact, at ICTS, I'm the experimentalist. Right. Well, I theoretic- run- theoretical is in the name of the place. So yeah. yes. Yes. So I'm the one doing experiments, which is kind of odd, given that there's so many physicists around yeah. and it's the mathematician. Well, who's but doing they're it. theoretical physicists. Uh, yeah, but it's the mathematician are. doing the experiments. So, yeah, you're right. I guess it seems strange. I, I understand, though, how that happened. But yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, there's, there's a logical thread that leads you there, but you do end up in a, in a sort of odd right. place. Um, I think I would have enjoyed myself in an engineering department, perhaps. I, I enjoy the purer side as well. And, and having that flexibility yeah. is, is, is hard. So the research environment in, in India is such that given that I like to talk to a lot of people, yeah. I'm comfortable. So here we should say that how I know you originally is through our mutual, well, your grad school friend and my current colleague, Kyle Manley, who, does, yeah. who was an applied math PhD That's right. grad student, I guess, at your, in your cohort. Yep, more or less. We used to have offices side by side. Right. So, so, so but he doesn't. He's not quite. Uh, I mean, he studies water waves and tsunamis and storm surge. So we. So it's. I mean, I work with him, but it's not. Ex- we're not exactly in the same field. Right. But yet, you've now moved into monsoon studies and atmospheric yes. sciences a bit. So actually, yes, it's sort of funny that you know actually you and I have a clo- closer scientific point of contact Correct. than than Kyle than than Kyle is than, a good friend right than the <laughs> than the conduit through how we met yeah, right, which is Kyle. that's right that's right so i'm kind of interested in how you got into that like what what, so what I happened have, there? I, I have a colleague uh, amit apte when i joined there were two other people in in mathematics mm-hmm. and he was one of them yeah. um and when i joined he said you know i've always been interested in the monsoon ever since i was a kid like, right. why does it happen? Mm. What goes on? Um, yeah. And he said, do you want to work on the monsoon? Mm. And I was like, I don't know what that phrase means. I don't understand what work on the monsoon means. But it seems like a difficult question. 
So you didn't interact with people in atmospheric sciences at UW or at Penn State? No, I or didn't. Or at Arizona State? All three places, by so, the way, okay, have I, reasonable I, programs. Absolutely, absolutely. They may not do the Indian monsoon, per so, se. So but Chris Bretherton, a famous atmospheric scientist. My postdoc mentor, actually. And your postdoc mentor. Yeah. Um, is a joint appointment in applied math. Yeah, right. And I have some good friends who were his PhD students. And so I knew people who worked on cloud parameterization, yeah. who worked on you know, all these kind of uh, problems in atmospheric science. Mm. I wasn't really keyed in to what they actually did scientifically. Right. Um, I knew, I, I know um, Jenny Evans right. uh, okay. from Penn State. All right. She is a good friend of my postdoc advisor. Oh, okay. And we used to have dinner almost every week together. Really? Um, she's I'm, the president of the American Meteorological Society at the moment, actually. She's my friend, Jenny. <laughs> she, she, she's a hurricane person, so I know Jenny pretty well. Yeah. Yes, yes. So she was surprised when I got into tropical meteorology yeah. after coming back to India. She was like, you never mentioned anything about that when you were here. Um, she's Australian. That's the Australian accent you're trying to do there. No. No? No, <laughs> okay. no, no, no. That's probably just my okay. excited accent. Okay, all right. Let's not insult the Australians. <laughs> okay. We'll do that when we play. I trip. lived there for a year and tried to learn to do the accent, but I, I, my goal was that by the end I'd be able to do the accent, but I never learned to do it. No. If, 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 if an Indian wants to insult the Australians, let's play cricket. Okay. <laughs> Jenny and I have gone back and forth multiple times talking about cricket okay. to, to the bemusement and boredom of everyone else at the dinner table. Right, I can imagine, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I know these people in meteorology, in atmospheric science, and I never put it together. And, right. I mean, I would say to some extent, I mean, I knew of these people, but we really didn't work together. Or there was there was right. no real conscious effort yeah. to work together. I, I probably should have, hmm. um, but you know I was doing other things I found interesting as well. Yeah. Um, and here, not having much of a water wave community, right. or the apply, the traditional applied math I community see. that I was surrounded by. Yeah. Um, I also like certain kind of partial differential equations, which are called dispersive, nonlinear partial differential equations, mm -hmm. and there's not much of a community for that. In India either. The mm. academic community, this is one of sort of the drawbacks of India. Most academic communities in various subjects are small. Right. Given the size of India, right. it is it is it's kind of shocking how small the communities can be. Right. And so I found another person who was willing to call themselves an applied mathematician. Right. And I jumped at it. Right. And I was like, sure, whatever. Right. Uh, I, um, I, I like Amit as a person, and usually this is how I choose research endeavors, which is I make friends, and right. we just start working together. And so he said he wanted to work on the Indian monsoon, and I said, it sounds like a difficult problem, sign me up. So the part of, there's two things that are interesting about this to me. I mean, one that you've kind of already talked about just now is, you know, as an applied mathematician, you're sort of changing fields to work on another problem, not changing fields, but choosing to work on another problem. I think it's fair to you say I, I was changing my focus from oh, water okay. waves, yeah. But the other thing is you didn't describe it as changing to atmospheric science. You described it as changing to, to the Indian monsoon. Yeah. And a thing that as, as an atmospheric scientist, climate scientist, meteorologist, whatever you want to call it, when I come to India, the thing that strikes me, two things. First of all, there is a very strong community here. There's a lot yes. of atmosphere ocean science. There's a very strong group in Bangalore at ISC. Yeah. There's strong groups in Absolutely. Pune, in Delhi, to yeah. some degree in Mumbai and other places. Yeah. 
And there are a couple um, of national lab type places. National labs, yeah. yeah. I mean, and there, let's put it this way. There's more than we appreciate in the United States. For because, sure. Because there's a lot of Indian scientists who don't get out that much out of the country. Yep. yep. And so we, we can talk about that as well at some point. Yeah, we should. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot. Of, there's, th- there's that. But the other thing that strikes me when I come here is that the overwhelming majority of the Indian scientists work on the Indian monsoon. Now, yes. on one level, you could say that's easy to understand. It's a huge deal here. The monsoon has a huge effect on the Indian agriculture, economy, people, everything. So there's great national interest in studying it. Yep. You know, if India's not going to do it, who's going to do it? You know, right. So right, on. Right. At the same time, there are other things that affect even India quite strongly that have relatively very small community. Like I study tropical cyclones. India gets hit by quite a few cyclones that cause huge damage. Right. There are people doing it. There are people. But I would but, say but again, shockingly small number of shockingly people. small. I would say compared to the monsoon, even. I mean, it's, that it's smaller than the monsoon community is fine, but like... I mean, almost everything is smaller Disproportionately than the small, I would say. And also for India, a country which has, you know, a billion people, um, I mean, there's a lot of poverty in India, but the government is not poor, right? Can, can fund substantial research enterprises with excellent scientists, well-trained people, yeah, big yeah. computers, all that. Yeah. You know, I'm sort of a little surprised that there isn't a little bit more sort of ambition to study things that are not in yeah. the backyard so much. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I'm particularly curious about that. I mean, you said Amit, you know, was fascinated since he was a kid. Maybe right. that's the answer of how it happened in your case. But here in ICTS, this is the purest, purest, you know, yeah. most most elite of the elite. You could do anything you wanted to, right? right. It's not like you have somebody in the government telling you you have to For do sure. on soon. For sure. So I'm sort of like, you see, I'm, I'm yeah, sort of interested the, in that dynamic. Yeah. So I think for me, you know, sort of, doing this kind of blue skies research, you know, sort of, you know, do, do some open-ended, yeah. ridiculously difficult problem, yeah. um, which has no necessarily, you know, sort of implication to society yeah. or importance. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm that enamored by that idea. Yeah. Um, I appreciate the freedom that ICTS affords in that respect. To right. pick whatever problem you want. Right. But I think I have a personal constraint. Right. Which is, I kind of want to do a problem that is relevant. Right. And given that I like to do pure mathematics. Yeah. I get my, like, I get my due of you know, abstract nonsense. <laughs> so I'd, I'd like to balance it. Right. With something far more concrete. And I come from an engineering background and... You know, the stuff with the pressure that we talked about, pressure of water waves and whatnot, I like it because the problem statement is very clear. It's an engineering problem. Right. The difficulty is how you do it. Right. Um, And I think that's kind of sort of how I approached the Indian monsoon. You know, there's there's a practical question here is we would like good predictions, Right. Now, of course, I understand prediction is a very difficult game. Right. And at this point, and, you're not working on prediction. And I we're mean, not working on prediction. And, and I don't, I'm not sure we, if, if we will get to prediction. Maybe one day, but it's not something we're actively mm-hmm. thinking about. So, I mean, I, yeah, I went to your research group meeting this morning. So you're more sort of trying to build models for the monsoon right. to understand the basics of it. Yes. In, a, in a way that, to me, the atmospheric scientist looks relatively abstract and yes. mathematically... Yes motivated yes yeah. i think that's fair to say i think given that most of us come from an abstract background or at least 
a non-atmospheric science background. Right, right. But um, you, but you do hang out with the atmospheric scientists in town and yes. interact with. Yeah. Yes, yes. And you know, this is maybe you know from a marketing perspective, one way to distinguish yourself. You want to find you know yeah. your little corner, what you can do, what nobody else does. Build up a more theoretical dimension to the. It's in the name of the institute, the, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Because so, most of the monsoon work is not of that character. It's right, it's, and so it's I think rather, when, when, it's rather, we, uh, when we looked at the bolts, monsoon, yeah. we we wanted to. Amit and I, 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 I think I can speak for him. We both wanted to look at it as, look, here is a very important problem. Yeah, we both have a personal connection to being Indians. Sure. Um, and we can afford to look at it in a way that maybe traditional atmospheric scientists in India don't right. look at, which is, you know, bringing in, you know, these sort of abstract mathematical tools, how useful they are, I don't know. Right. But if we wanted to contribute, right. it would be from an angle where we have something right. to say. Right. Uh, the tools we know. Maybe at the end of this, we realize, look, you don't need all this sophisticated stuff and you can get by with much simpler analysis. Yeah. Um, if that's the case, I'd still call it a job well done, which is, you know, I've at least told you what not to bother your time right. with. Um, I do generally look at myself as some sort of mathematical salesman who goes around learning mathematics and telling people useful bits of mathematics yeah. that they should know or they can sort of right. not worry about um, that's, that's kind of what I feel like my job is. Right. So I guess what, what I was sort of asking is, you know, given that you have no real external constraint on what you work on, like why limit yourself to the monsoon and what you're saying is to be fair, I don't, I, I, I work with people in condensed matter physics. I yeah, work yeah, with, yeah. so no, I, I understand, yeah. but, but what you're saying is like, you do want to do something practical to some way and you feel some connection. This is the problem that's important to the country. But at the same time, you're using the blue sky sort of privilege that you have here right, to right. add another dimension to it where you don't feel immediately compulsion to get exactly. practical results. You don't have to do prediction. Right. You have to build up a sort of theoretical side to the right. thing that isn't so much happening in the rest of the country. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair to say. I think I, I, I would want to bring to the table uh, you know, something that is not present on the table yeah and, no, and, and i think you're right it isn't i mean and yeah. and you know there's a privilege i have yeah so i should exercise it yeah no, i'm with you um what about global warming do you think of is that a part of the problem that you think about at all because it's not only you know there's prediction in the sense of year to year yeah that's what most of the research in india yes is on like yes. how can we make a better forecast of next year's yes. month soon but there's also the like you know right. 50 years from now how yeah. is it going to be different is that something that you've thought about at all or or might think about or is that I to be honest we haven't thought about mm -hmm. uh, a lot of these things we defer to real atmospheric scientists so you know you you talk Well you work on it long enough you'll be one Yeah I mean that's the Yeah but but at this point <laughs> I defer to real atmospheric scientists um people like Solochna Gadgil Yeah yeah and you know who who've sort of well, she's very focused on the seasonal prediction problem, too. She's very focused on the seasonal prediction. But we have explicitly asked her about, you know, what about climate change? Yeah. What about forcings, anthropogenic forcing? Should we, yeah. should we focus on this or should we focus on that? Um, and I think for now, we are largely focused on the basics. Right. And trying to get the generic version. Right. Now, along the way, presumably, we'll realize that our generic version 
it's not matching really well with observations. Right. Um, maybe at that point, we yeah. we focus on on these things. Um, but no, I think it's it's a, it's something we should think about. But it's not something right. we've seriously thought about. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in more broadly in the question I, of how climate change problem is perceived in India generally because it yeah. because it plays politically what I've I don't claim to understand it deeply but what I've learned is that it plays politically very differently here from how it plays in the US and I'm wondering I, I, whether I think, you have I any perception fair, of I think this that's fair to say. and just to be specific about that what yeah. I mean is that in the US the central thing is between the climate deniers and the non-climate denier I mean the people right who, you know the the political debate is between those who say this is a huge problem which I, you know of course I count myself among them who say this is a huge problem we should be doing something and the right wing, which currently occupies, you know, controls most of the federal government, uh, which says, you know, we don't have to worry about this. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys are just, you know, alarmists go away and right. we're just going right. to, you know, drill, baby drill or whatever. Right, right, right. Whereas here, there's no climate deniers not re- to speak of. of. Yeah, yeah. Instead, the debate is, it comes in a different way. Like India has, as many places, but maybe more extreme than some other places, a lot of other environmental problems. Yeah. And... Climate change can actually be used as a way to sort of deflect attention from the other. In other words, to say, because climate change is seen as something that's been, uh, truthfully, I think, as something that, at least up until recently, as something that's been created by the West, you know, that India is sort of an innocent victim of, which there's some truth to that. There's some some truth to that. You know, it's changing, but that's historically true. There's a rate. And and so it's a way of saying, like, you know, think about, you know, the recent floods in, you know, in in Chennai Chennai or Mumbai, where. Are largely not. Like the, the, I think the biggest factor is probably like policy. Yeah, right. Well, I, but I mean, I have the impression that the, the the if you talk to people who think that those kind of events are a real problem, yeah, that the government should be doing something about, yeah, the, the most activist people frame it. I think mostly rightly, yeah, at least for in terms of short term or medium term thinking, as a problem of developing in the floodplains, you know, right. building things where you shouldn't build them. Inadequate right. regulation, not caring enough about right. the rights of poor people, you know, those kind of things. Right. And the climate problem is almost seen as a way for um, power to deflect those concerns by saying, well, you know, we have climate change. What are we supposed to do? You know, the West dumped this horrible problem on us. You know what I mean? It's used in a totally different way. Yes. Yes. And, and, and I think and, that's that's largely true. And, and, and so I'm just curious, is this something that you think about, I mean, I guess professionally you yeah. are asked, you're, you're enough of not an atmospheric scientist, I guess that you don't get like called by re- media to talk about this or something. I, n- I never get called by media for any purpose. Right. Well, I didn't either until, <laughs> until one day I did, but so it could happen. Yeah. But yeah, but, but yeah, but, um, well, probably. once this podcast gets out, <laughs> I, I wish it had that kind of impact, but I, I you know, I, yeah. but I somehow doubt it, but yeah. Um, is that, do, you, do you think about this issue at all? And I mean, is yeah. That- so um, I, I definitely have thoughts that a lot of India's problems, and I'll explain this phrase, but I think a lot of India's problems are not sexy. Which is, we don't right. require grand solutions. Right. We require things that most of the world has figured out. Uh, Toilets. Right. Sewage treatment plants. Yeah. Garbage disposal plants. Right. I don't. I don't think our problems for now, yeah, are sexy. Right. Although, I mean, to be fair, I mean, I think building in floodplains and people living where they shouldn't is not an exclusively Indian. I mean, we have that it problem in the United States too. It's not an exclusive. Maybe it's a little more egregious here, but I, yeah. I also don't think it's it's like 
it's not the sexy prop, right? I mean, it's not like yeah, I mean, we have I'm just world saying, catastrophic events right. that we need really smart scientists working on. Right. What I'm just, we need is is good policy and probably policy informed by scientists. Right. It's it's, it's yeah. the simple things. Yeah. We need we need better traffic laws. Right. We need you know better flow like better regulated traffic, more pedestrian zones. Probably, large part of Bangalore is really small. Right. You could walk. Yeah. So our problems are not the things that require maybe even central or federal government intervention. Right. Local governments right. should be taking the lead. Right. I mean, and this is weird. I sound like a Republican, and and I'm. I'm no, I, well, I, but I, I mean, think these words have different meanings over here. Yeah. And and so I, I I used to kid with my with my brother quite often that you know I'm I'm a Democrat in the U.S. and I'm a Republican in India. I want less government intervention in certain things. I want right. local government solutions. Right. Because I think certain things are local government. Garbage disposal is a local government issue. Right. Well, there's a couple things I want to say about this. I mean, I agree with everything you said. I'm about to rant. <laughs> no, no, but I, I agree with it all. But there's a couple things I want to say that I think should be said here. I mean, one is that, um, you know, in the United States, you might say we've done better at some of these things historically, yes. whether because we're richer, the colonial, you know, whatever it is. But also, we're starting had, to screw it up time. big time now because we have a government now that's just against anything yep. that isn't, you know, yep. utmost, you know, giving yep. more money yeah, to the rich. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we're, you know, so we're... As, we, as with a lot of things, we're, we're, context we're, and degree we're, matter. We're trying to make ourselves more like India as quickly as possible. You know, great, and, greater and it, inequality, more dysfunctional And India is services. trying to make itself the U.S. as quickly as possible. Right. That's, so that's one thing. I mean, the other thing is, although I think that I think what an, another way of saying what you're saying is that in some sense, the global conversation about environmental issues, which at the current moment is dominated by climate, is a bit West centric in the sense that it's you let's, know let's let's put it this way let, let, let's be more generous there was a certain movement you had in the construction of the epa in the u.s oh yeah that was in the 70s yes and and we haven't had yeah that. right and, but, and we're, so, but trump is trying to kill it as fast as possible no, i i appreciate that but i'm just saying we're we're a couple of steps behind yeah no but i'm so and and so some of our problems can be fixed along those lines yeah someone should Keep in mind the global trajectory of climate change. Yes, and I think that is existential for India. I and mean, I think one hundred percent. I agree with you. you it know, is existential. There are floodplains. There are you know issues where the water level rise will cause significant damage. Yeah. Um, I yeah, think the coastal cities the, are in trouble. The, the heat alone scares of me. The heat. Absolutely. We've. I mean, you know, ever since I was a kid in in Rajasthan, which is the hottest state. By and large, it's a desert state. Yeah, um, yeah. We we were well aware of heat waves and and deaths, and I think, you know, anecdotally, numbers have been rising. So um, I mean, in other words, it's it, it it may not be an issue. We have a lot it's of not, things in, in other words, India it's not the same about. debate about you know, it's a different debate than how can we improve life in India by managing things locally. I mean, it, I think the the point there is that and it's 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 not in India's self interest to bow out of the global debate about climate. For sure. Even if what that means is yelling at the US that, you know, and the and Europe that look you guys caused this, you know, to to, to be fair, problem the, the, and, yeah. the, the Modi administration has made that argument yeah, multiple and times it's a fair at, argument, the, at yeah. the at the Paris accords and whatnot. Yeah. In spite of which at least the alleged uh, sort of, you know, goals uh, that India signed up to in the Paris accord yeah. are are commendable. Yeah. If we can if we can achieve that 
That's, I mean, there's also an argument. I mean, there's the argument. One argument is that, look, the West doesn't have a right to lecture us because you guys burn lots of fossil fuel and that's how you got rich. And so don't, you know, give yep. us a hard time. That's yep. a totally fair argument to make. On the other hand, the counter argument to that is like, you know, no, the world's the- going to decarbonize. Right. So like if you just like sort of can leapfrog over, right. you know, the, right. way del- the way we developed, like you, you win in the long term, you know, right. there's like right. if you can go to renewables quicker, which may happen. I think the, I know. don't think the government actually has an opposition to that. Yeah, I yeah. think what they have in opposition is to requiring Indian resources to spend time to figure out those solutions. Right. Yeah. It's possible that what they yeah. want is, well, the, the West caused this problem. Yeah. You figure out the solution. You tell us. We'll change. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think, I I wish, I wish the West had it in us to lead. It doesn't seem to work in that way at the moment, but yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the Modi administration had these uh, declarations that, you know, we'll have all these electric cars uh, in, 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 in a couple of years or so. My main concern has been, we have good goals. I don't see as much progress towards those goals. So then I'm worried, was the goal rhetoric or was it, you know, was, was it just a way to get back at the at the West and say, stop telling us to do things? We're doing stuff, but yeah. you know, how much of I don't it? No, but actually things could change impacted. quickly, though. I mean, you know, with the price of solar coming down so fast, it's a sunny country. Solar is know. probably uh, the best bet in terms of the bulk of the energy. I mean, we have a lot of solar energy. Yeah. Uh, wind, nuclear is doable here. Right? Nuclear is doable. It's not as politically toxic as in the U.S., is it, or is it? It's. Not for the reasons that it is in the U.S. Mm. You know, three you know Three Mile Island is is not what we worry about. Right. Um, on the other hand, there are some local issues. So local government issues. Uh, NIMBY is basically the problem. Mm. Right. Uh, not in my backyard. Yep. Um, so where the power plant goes and how it affects the 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 water bodies that are associated to it, because usually the water bodies. Uh, Get, they, they get the discharge of the hot water, right? which tends to affect the wildlife. Yeah. So there's a nuclear power plant in, in Tamar Nadu in, in a place called Kalpakam, mm. where I think you know, there's been constant tension between the local fishermen yeah. and, and the nuclear power plant. And the fishermen have enough clout, enough traction to... I, I think it's become a political issue. So there's, there's politicians involved who wish... Like, let's cynically, I would say, wish to make a name for themselves. Charitably, I would say, champion the cause of the fishermen. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm not, you know. So I'm. I mean, I feel it, the fishermen's pain. I'm not, you know. I'm sure absolutely. they. I'm sure they and, have a case. And and I yeah, think I you know to, th- yeah. this is this is the challenge of India. Yeah. How do you manage these demands, which are which are genuine? Yeah. Um, on the other hand, of course, we would need some amount of nuclear. Energy, we have uh, a lot of thorium, I believe. So um, liquid fluoride reactors uh. run on thorium, if I'm right. Mm. And so that's a technology that India has been developing. Yeah. I think this is public information, so I'm not divulging anything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, of course that would be uh, a part of you know the, the the bouquet of energy solutions that you provide. Yeah. Um, tidal energy is something, but it's a small amount for India. Even though we have a coastline of 8,000 right. kilometers, we are too close to the tropics. This is 
my atmospheric science showing now, yeah. uh, or my oceanography, that we don't have as much energy power density right. as maybe the northern latitudes or the yeah. southern. I mean, latitudes on the uh, but an upside, or maybe it's a downside. But I think it's wind the upside. also is not so. Uh, but popular. I mean, another big in- difference between India and the U.S. is that the U.S. de facto now is an oil state, right? And India is not. India is not. We buy which, oil. Yeah, but I mean, it gives another reason to decarbonize. Like, why? Yeah. Why do you have to? You know. Exactly. Why do you have to send all the buy all the energy from outside? Yeah. When I you, think I yeah. think there are this. You know, here's the interesting thing: there there are good economic reasons why India should decarbonize. Yeah. And I don't think anyone disagrees with those. Yeah. I think the real issue is who devotes the research and resources to developing those solutions. Yeah. And in some ways, I think like the problems of India are sort of they're like the same as a lot of other places, but just amplified so much because you have a billion people in this yes. you know relatively yes. small yes. You know, subcontinent, and, right? And so, for instance, colonial legacy and all these other, you know, I, headaches I, that you know. One of my favorite things to rant about, um, because everyone needs things to rant about, and you should <laughs> pick a favorite, uh, is is this idea that you know we should have invested in sort of metro public transportation systems in cities. Yeah. In 1994, when we opened up the Indian economy. Right. You know, this is something that we should have looked at and realized when you when we liberalized the economy. We knew there was going to be investment. Yeah, we knew that we had to brace ourselves for rapid expansion, and we knew that cities would become hubs where people from the villages would migrate to. Yeah, that the population densities would increase. Right, that the demand for water, electricity would have been much better if we had both long-distance public transportation, which the Indian Railways does do a commendable job, but, you know, you want it actually high-speed. Yeah. So that you can live in Mysore and work in Bangalore. Right. Well, the painful thing is we're not that much better in the U.S. at any of this. I don't think the U.S. is the best model for that. No, definitely not. Uh, We built some good public transit systems like in the early 20th century, and then the auto industry killed it. Exactly. And now some cities are trying to get it back a little bit too late. And I think, you know, maybe in 1994, I could be very charitable and say, we didn't realize the magnitude of the problems of urban population intensification that we would see. Yeah. 10 years hence in 2004, you were already one of the fastest growing economies. Yeah. You had like 7% GDP, I think, or something. Right. You, you, you at least had enough to know yeah. that you are on track right. to becoming a bigger economy. Right. You must have realized by then yeah. that the population migrated away from the villages. Although still, I would say two-thirds of the country still lives in villages. Yeah. But we had the data at that point. Two-thirds, is that right? About 600 million people live in villages, I believe. Mm, okay. What's the definition of a village? Population below something? These are places with, you know, maybe 10,000, 20,000 people. Because villages can be extraordinarily Sort of agricultural. Very agricultural based. Yes. Yes. And and so there has been a, you know, consistent migration because the jobs are here. There's a lot of construction going on. A lot of uh, agricultural laborers became construction labor. um, And, you know, intensification of slum areas. Yeah. Um... Demand for water, electricity, everything goes up. Yeah. Um, and you don't necessarily have the best urban sanitation systems. Right. Uh, at least not necessarily as planned as you want it. Right. And I think this is my main issue, is that in 2004, at least, we should have said, okay, fine. 
let's start building the high-speed rail yeah. and the metros we need yeah. so that we can move the people yeah. without having them to relocate their entire yeah. ancestral home, sell their land cheaply on you know, far too less of an amount where they don't have enough to invest in the city. Right. So they don't necessarily come out of poverty or any such thing. Right. And they've sold their one tangible asset. Right. Um, and it's 2019. Yeah. And we still haven't scaled up. I mean, now at least the Modi administration has made a lot of noises about high-speed rail. But come on, guys. We, we knew what we needed to do. Right. Uh, scale up infrastructure. And I think infrastructure is India's biggest challenge, whether it's transmission distribution of electricity, where we, have, we create enough power, but we lose a lot in transmission and distribution. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I like about India is the problems are obvious. Mm. The solutions can be hard, right. but the problems are obvious. Why is that a, why is that a plus? Well, as, as a mathematician, I mean, I'm, I'm much better <laughs> when you tell me what the problem is. Okay. That's uh, interesting. Okay. You know, I, I, I like it when the problems are obvious. Yeah. Now we can work on the solution. Yeah. Um, when we need to frame what the problem is, there's a lot of subjectivity involved. Huh. I think we pretty much know what we need to do. I don't see why we're not doing it. And maybe there are political reasons why we're not doing it. I'm not, I, I'll be honest, I'm not the biggest fan of the Modi administration. Um, not for the obvious reasons. I think there's a lot of left-leaning academics in India who have issues with the right-leaning tendencies right. of, the, of the BJP. Right. Um, I, I can see the concern. But I guess my main issues are actually with how science is funded. Like, guys, we don't need to make uh, an ideological statement. We know what the problem is. We know where the funding needs to be. You know. Where does it need to be? Well, let's say in the case of monitoring the, 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 the total capture of rainfall and mm. sort of, uh, you know, not rainwater harvesting, but really like, you know, uh, watersheds. And, water management. And water yeah, what management. India has a very, very scary water problem, depletion right. of groundwater. Right. And I know, think, yeah. you know, scientists physicists, mathematicians, yeah. engineers. And of course, there are some engineers and hydrologists who get involved. But yeah. I think in some level, it's all hands on deck. I should, we should say engineering hydrology internationally, my perception is mostly Indian. I mean, all the, all the great engineering hydrologists are Indian as far as I, I mean. Could be, yeah. To, to a, yeah. Lo- a large yeah. fraction of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it is a thing that this country is good at. But, it, it is a yet, thing but the problems are so massive that, yeah. Exactly. I think, I think there's a lot of people to get involved with. And I think there's a lot of criticisms of the Modi administration in their cutting funds of programs that were monitoring, you know, the watersheds and yeah. the amount of land that was under government monitoring has shrunk remarkably. And so these are issues that, you know... I, your religious views aside, yeah, I have a practical concern. Yeah. And I think that's something that we should be hammering more. Yeah. And again, you know, it's this sort of, I like to focus on the boring problems. Well, it's... Yeah. Right? It's, it's not the thing that captures the media's attention, which is usually religion. Right. right, because it stokes well, the passion. There's a climate dimension to it too, in the sense that, you know... Oh, for sure. The but- Himalayan glaciers may, glaciers may not be melting at the rate that 
you know, whatever that IPCC report that got it wrong said, but, right. and they overestimated the risk. And it was clearly just an error. It was a flat out error that didn't get caught in the IPCC review process. Right. And in the U.S., this is an interesting thing. In the U.S., how that played was, once that came out, how the U.S. played was, the deniers went nuts and said, look, the climate scientists are all alarmists. You're overstating it. In India, my understanding of it, and I've read a bit about it since then, I didn't appreciate this at the time, but it played totally differently. It played, it played the role of, look, these Western arrogant climate scientists don't understand India and they're just screwing up the basic things. Yeah. And, you know, so in, in, and I think in some circles that actually spurred a little more engagement in, in global climate sure. debate from Indian scientists because, it, because think, there was a movement in the government of like, we have to do this ourselves. Yes. You know, because we can't just let the Westerners, you know, mess it up. Yes. We, you know, and, and whatever. But regardless of, of that, I mean, there is, an, you know, those glaciers melting is a problem on top of all the local issues of, Pumping groundwater. That's right. You know, using it badly for agriculture and other purposes. You know, That's growing right. rice in dry climate. You know, all these right. things. That's that right. Are, yeah. Sugar cane. Yeah. You yeah. know, water consumption of certain crops. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, our problems are largely economic. Yeah. And, you know, in the traditional sense of the word, which is, you know, management of resources. It is. It is not just. A, well, those are political problems too, because it's those are political problems. For but, whom and right, by. but but they're not necessarily always the scientific problem. Right, right. And I think this is where maybe some of the scientists need to get in and say it's not a scientific problem. It's an economic problem. It's a policy question. Well, I think this and is, and we yeah. can inform you and say that you know these are the things that are uncertain and we're certain about these things. So let's just go ahead and and and, and follow through. Well, and, I, yeah. and, and my main complaint has always been with the Modi administration uh, that, um, yeah, I said I wouldn't get into politics, but, Go for it. Um, but it's, you know, the, the issues of the way in which science is funded in India, um, the, the sort of cuts on certain kinds of programs and whatnot, which are not necessarily the same politically motivated cuts that you see in the U.S. But in India, it's seen as, it's a luxury. What have you really done for us in the last 60 odd years? Right. You guys have been sitting in your elite towers, not really worrying about what India needs. And India needs economic growth. Right. And you guys are just sitting there doing nothing. Right. So it's not the political argument that the Republicans in the U.S. make. Right. It's an argument for well, cuts. Yeah. But it's more they of They might this, say that too. I mean, there is an argument of like, oh, a lot of sciences are just studying obscure. That's a critique you get at the National Science Foundation. Like, oh, you, we right. paid a million dollars for a study about birds right. or something, you know. Right. I mean, there's that kind of nonsense that you do here. But. Yeah, well, how, how, how ducks mate. Or, I mean, I think that's the one that got... There's poster uh, children, you know. It's, yeah, there's, yeah, there's poster child, children for all of those things. I think in India, it's, it's, it's seen as, you know, academics are sort of disengaged from society. Um, this is not actually true. Academics in India, mm. if you talk to non-scientists, right. are very active. Uh. So political scientists, right, economics right. Uh, professors, um, right. sociologists, right. particularly from Delhi, right. are remarkably active yeah. and remarkably uh, critical of the current administration. Right. Um, and frequently voice their opinions against the administration, its policies, so on, so, and, and various political parties. Scientists in India have usually been reticent. Right. I mean, 
mean, I think that's true globally to some extent. I don't know whether it, maybe it's more I, true I, in I've, India. I've always got the feeling that scientists in India have always been far more reticent. Yeah, but I it's mean, sort of li- a live and let live policy. Right. Well, but I mean, there is a perception everywhere historically that I mean, I think it's changing a bit, especially in climate science and some other fields today in the United States and in Europe. But there is a you know historically there's a view that scientists shouldn't be advocates. Right. They right. Just do the science, and at some point, you know. The, the climate thing went so far south because the climate scientists thought for many years, well, we're just going to say what the, you know, what's going on and then the politicians will do the right thing and we don't have to get involved in the messy right. thing. It didn't, clearly that didn't work out. And so at some point the scientists start to realize, well, at least some do, and this certainly happened to me, that like we just can't back out of this. The fact that there's a political debate that has to be had that is not ultimately about science, but is about values and what kind of, you know, society want, we want to live in, right? that is, even though it's not science, we shouldn't pretend that that is science. You know, Greta Thunberg says, listen to the science. I think that's kind of a bad slogan because the science, I mean, yeah, we have to start from the science, but the, the, the choices that we should be making, you know, that depends on things that are not Values. science. But right. we can't, but we don't have the luxury of staying out of that. You right. know, yeah, we can't pretend that science is what it isn't or vice, you know. Right. But, you know, at some point, we're in positions of stature and authority and, and privilege. Yeah, yeah. And so we should engage even if historically we didn't think that was our job. Right. You know, that's right. the... Right. Yeah. So I, I, I do on the whole feel scientists in India should engage more. And I'm, I'm happy to report that over the last two or three years, there have been statements from the scientific community on a host of issues. Not so much on climate change. Yeah. Uh, these are, in fact, the most recent was a statement by multiple Indian scientists against a bill that was just passed in both houses of parliament about uh, amending the uh, citizenship bill. Oh my God, yeah, I've been reading about that just passed this, like, today, right? That, that passed today in the higher house. Oh my God. Yeah, the Rajya Sabha. There was a scientist. Uh, there was a there was a response from uh, there was a letter signed by a number of scientists saying that they you know they they were sort of critical of the of 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 the bill um, that they were worried about sort of uh, the the non secular nature of yeah, that bill. Good for you guys. Yeah, this um, is a shock. So this is the bill says I'm trying to understand. This is a bill that basically says refugees from neighboring countries would be granted citizenship. Um, if they belonged to certain religions, as long as they're not Muslims, basically. Yeah, so that was the one religion that was left out. Right. So they're so they're welcoming Hindus and Sikhs and Sikhs and Christians, Christians and, and Jews, Jains whoever and, yeah. from what is it, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Afghanistan. Was there another one? At least those. Three. Uh, Bhutan, Bhutan, I, Bhutan, and maybe even Burma, yeah. uh, Myanmar. And Sri Lanka. But just Muslims aren't welcome. So this is a kind of, they're right. distinguishing in, in granting citizenship so, to people, so, 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 distinguishing on the basis of religion, which India was supposed to not do from its founding. Right. Principles. So there is, there is an article of the Constitution, Article 14, that says no person shall be treated unequally on the basis uh, right. of uh, religion, for instance. Right. And, and, and several Supreme Court judgments have clarified that position. Right. That you will not that that right. secularism is a is a founding yeah. right, concept in the Indian Constitution and and the distinction on the basis of religion yeah, should so not be made. Stop it, right? The Supreme it's... Court is possibly the only hope. Um, 
given recent pronouncements from the Supreme Court that have largely aligned with the government's decision on a number of issues, mm. uh, some people are skeptical. Mm. Now, you know, to, to be fair, let me also voice the, the government's sort of mm. uh, counterpoint, mm. which is to say that um, Islam was left out because Muslims are not a persecuted minority right. in our neighbors. Right. Um, I'm not sure how, well, how true that is if our neighbors include the Rohingya. Right or so, or and, and also, I'm you know, not sure. Shia, Sunni, Sunni right. issues, and, 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 and you know, frankly, I I do feel in general, we really shouldn't be making laws based on present context. Right. Like I mean, if you are gonna lock in an idea, yeah. and of course, in a lot of these cases, you know, jurisprudence is essentially locking in historical precedent. Yeah. Um, why are we using current conditions? Why not just say refugees who are persecuted minorities? Right. It gets the point across. Right. Well, the, the, because the cynical counterargument is that's not the intent. That is the cynical counterargument. And I'm... And it's kind of hard to refute that at the moment. It seems, it seems kind of hard to refute. We got really far from your career in science and life. Well, you wanted to talk eventually know, about politics. I know, it was and wonderful. So, uh, yeah, we, but, but I, at some point we got um, to get something to eat. Yes. So um, is there anything important we should cover that we didn't cover? I, I, I guess the one thing that is, is different, I have touched upon this, but this idea of subject hierarchy. Uh. Hierarchy in India in general is, is, a, is an omnipresent motif mm -hmm. we 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 make hierarchies of almost anything mm -hmm. caste is but aversion mm -hmm. uh, affluence of course mm -hmm. uh, class whatnot but even your favorite subject and what you want to study mm. there are hierarchies and mm. and in in each such subject there is the chosen subject mm -hmm. sub-subject let's say right which, weirdly enough, I have a theory. This is a pet theory. I'm just putting out. But I have a theory that it's always the subject that is least practical. Mm -hmm. It is the thing that evolves the mind. Mm -hmm. Because there is this inherent bias that when you work with things on a purely sort of abstract mental level, mm -hmm. you are somehow better. And you can interpret this as saying, well, the priestly class is better than the rest. You can interpret this as saying computer science engineers are better than the rest. You can interpret this as saying, you know, theoretical physicists are better than the rest. You can interpret this as saying finance MBAs are better than sales MBAs and mm -hmm. marketing MBAs because they deal with the sort of lowly things of working with people mm -hmm. and whatnot. Um, and, in, and in that sense, you know, applied math is, is, is lower than pure math. And so I have this weird pet project uh, theory that, you know, we always choose the ascetic choice or we choose mm -hmm. the, the level of higher existence. And frankly, I'm, I'm getting a little fed up of this. And I think, you know, we need to shift a little bit to practical concerns, mm. do things that are doable. Mm. Um, many of our problems are not the thing we need to sit back and ponder how to solve. Mm. We just need to get up and do them. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's my pet theory. I don't know what it, I mean, maybe I'll change my mind in 10 years or so, but there's this sort of weird bias to things. 
within, uh, I would say within, let's say medicine, right. my dad is a doctor. Yeah. So this is how I learned that there's a certain bias that uh, people who do medicine as opposed to surgery, mm. like people who do medicine are cleverer and smarter because they know mm. all these drugs and how to, how to, like, how to diagnose and whatnot. Mm. And the surgeons are the ones who work with their hands. Interesting. Right. I think surgeons are sort of the top of the totem pole in the U.S., if I remember. Right. I don't really and, and know doctors, but I sort of think I've heard that. Yeah, so, you know, the phrase neurosurgeon or rocket scientist uh. are far too applied in India to be uh-huh. seen as, you know, intelligent people. Um, you know, the, 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 the theoretical physicist thinking about the grander questions of life, uh. which, of course, peop, you know, some fraction of the country can do that. Yeah. But I feel like, there's something to be said about doing things with your hand that needs uh. championing. So, I mean, it's interesting. We're sitting here. You're employed by the Institute for Theoretical Sciences. Yep. It seems like you've got some direction in mind that's... Well, it's... That's, well, uh, let's, let's, let's see what you're, where you're going to go with this. Let's, let's say two things. First of all, I am the experimentalist here. Yeah. So I, I run a fluids lab and I like to think I... Well, most, the postdocs do most of the work, but I do help them from time to time. Yeah. Um, so... I like to think that I'm still being honest with myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing is, um, maybe this is, you know, my rebellious side. Right. No, but I mean, I'm, I'm just interested. It sounds like there's something in your future of getting more deeply involved in the problems of the, of the country and the world. And maybe. It's interesting to see what that's going to be. Maybe. I mean, at, so, at some point, I, if, 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 it's, if it's challenging enough, which is, which is almost certainly true, that it is challenging enough, and I can say something sensible enough. Yeah then, yeah, I don't see why I wouldn't feel the obligation to say something. Okay. That is a complete non-answer. I think I'm, uh, you know... Oh, 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 I'm just making I'm, a I'm, cautious prediction based on what you're saying. Well, let's yeah. see. I mean, we're... Well, we're pri- privileged to do what we do, right? I mean, it's... Exactly. Yeah. We're privileged. I, I mean, I feel like I'm privileged enough to take that risk. Yeah. If, 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 if that's what it means, then sure, let's do that. If, if I can help, and, mm. and this is at least my personal view of applied math, yeah. is... It's a service. I help right. other people. Yeah. You know, I, I helped people with their homework problems when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> and I help my colleagues with their math problems now. Okay. And if, if, if that's what this leads to, helping other people with, with problems, then sure. If I can help, I'll help. Okay. Some sort of Hippocratic oath of applied math. Probably. <laughs> There's some amount of guilt involved, I guess, I'm sure. Privilege, <laughs> guilt, all that adds. But let's go with the Hippocratic <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Sounds much better. All right. Okay. Well, did we cover it? I think so. Okay. I'm Thanks. Done. Thanks for talking to me, Michelle. Thanks for talking okay. to me. All right. Bye. A Hippocratic Oath for Scientists. It's a good idea and one we should talk about more in future episodes. But for now, let's credit it to Vishal Vasan. And it was such a pleasure to talk to him. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duotone Audio Group, where our editors and post-producers are Stefan Wiener and Dana Hamm. And our audio engineer is Juan Aboitis. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine. And our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. <laughs>